The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. 30 years ago yesterday, November 22nd, 1990, the Right Honourable Margaret Thatcher, Privy Councillor and Member of Parliament for Finchley, resigned as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom and leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party. We didn't have smartphones in those days. I remember being on the Tube, on the Northern Line, en route to the first night of some grim bit of fringe theatre agitprop in North London, and uh, the train conductor, having been apprised of the news at some stop along the way, was so overcome he felt obliged to announce over the intercom that Maggie had quit and was no more. And a majority of the passengers cheered. They were lefties, presumably, but I don't know why they were cheering. It was rather pathetic that after over a decade of denouncing her as evil and destructive and chanting Maggie, 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 out, 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 everywhere she went... They were, in the end, unable to take her out, and it was instead left to the weasels of her own party, the wets, as she called them, roughly analogous to the rhinos in the American Republican Party. It was left to the wets of her own party uh, to rise up in an act of matricide, with consequences the Tories live with to this day as one shallow, hollow opportunist is succeeded by another. We mock them mercilessly in our summer diversion, the uh, the Prisoner of Windsor, if you've yet to hear it. The Westminster system, in its various iterations around the world, is sudden and brutal. The quote, men in grey suits had told Mrs Thatcher they'd run the numbers and the jig was up. And she must uh, surely have reflected on her old friend Enoch Powell's observation that all political careers end in failure. A couple of days later, when she departed Downing Street, I was supposed to be having a drink with her daughter Carol, my favourite Thatcher, such a fun person. And Carol left a message on my answer machine to say she was going to be a bit late as she had to swing by the supermarket to get some food for mum and dad on their first night out of Downing Street. Power falls away instantly. And as you know, I prefer that system to the elephantine process of two-year campaigns for four-year terms, which are actually three-and-three-quarter-year terms, with a destabilising three-month transfer of power used to set up the incoming president, his attorney general, and his national security adviser with a two-year phony investigation followed by an impeachment trial just as a global pandemic uh, arrives to infect the world. So here we are. I supported Trump before you did, before Mark Levin did, before Sean Hannity did, before Rush did. Read my piece from July 10th, 2015, three weeks after he came down that escalator. I don't want Trump to throw in the towel. I want him to grab that towel, wipe the leaking Grecian formula off Rudy's cheeks and get serious. Because if you think as I do that there was electoral fraud in Democrat precincts in key swing states sufficient to deliver the electoral college to Joe Biden, then this last weekend was very dispiriting. It began with Tucker Carlson under fire from the right for his observations on Sidney Powell. Many people I respect, such as Brigitte Gabriel, the tireless anti-jihad campaigner, and Anne Corcoran, the tireless anti-refugee fraud campaigner, announced that they were done with Tucker. On Twitter, he became instantly hashtag turncoat Tucker, selling out Trump for millions from Rupert Murdoch and George Soros. Unlikely co-funders, but let that pass. That quickly escalated to accusations that Tucker and Hunter 
were part of that Pizzagate pedo pizza parlour, there was speculation that his name was on the passenger list of Jeffrey Epstein's Lolita Express, and so the deep state had gotten to him. I don't even know how that works. I mean, it's not like anybody else who's on the Lolita Express manifest has gone to jail, is it? Priority boarding for the Lolita Express is the surest sign your white privilege is so super privileged the justice system can't touch you and the media won't even mention it. Now, I go on Tucker's show every week, mainly because he's not just a mindless, devoted cheerleader, and so I find it a more interesting show than others, which I choose not to go on. And so, after a while... I started uh, getting told over the weekend that I shouldn't go on Tucker's show or I'd likewise be dead to them because Tucker had sold out and he'd thrown that brave, fearless woman, Sidney Powell, under the bus. Across the horizons in real time, thousands upon thousands of tweets unrolled minute by minute. You're dead to me, turncoat Tucker. F you, Tucker. Stick a fork in him. He's done. How dare he throw Sidney Powell under the bus? And then the Trump campaign threw Sidney Powell under the bus. Trump lawyers Rudy Giuliani and Jenna Ellis issued a formal statement saying that Miss Powell represented neither the Trump campaign nor Trump in a personal capacity. In that case, uh, why was she standing between Giuliani and Miss Ellis at that press conference the other day? Why was she introduced by Rudy as one of the team's senior lawyers? The press conference was at the RNC, so it's got pretty tight security. It's not like Four Seasons Landscaping at the strip mall on the edge of Philadelphia where you can be picking up an attractive vinyl trellis for your rose garden and accidentally wander into shot with Corey Lewandowski. To get into the RNC and wind up standing between Giuliani and Jenna Ellis is kind of hard to pull off unless you actually are a member of the legal team. Nevertheless, Rudy and Jenna threw Sydney under the bus and with weird synchronicity, her Twitter account was immediately suspended. And for a moment, Twitter was befuddled. So uh, now Sydney's out and Tucker's back in? And then half the people who tweeted at Tucker, stick a fork in him, he's done, said, uh, OK, take the fork out of Tucker and stick it in Sydney. And at least a couple of tweeters suggested Sydney must be a Democrat plant deliberately placed in the Trump legal team to discredit it. And then an hour or two went by and the tweeters took the fork out of Sydney and replanted it in Tucker's chest because if not for his comment on Thursday night, Trump wouldn't have been head faked by Tucker into dumping Sydney Powell. Personal note, I like Sydney and I like Tucker and I'm not going to be told by pseudonymous assholes on Twitter whom I can associate with. It's an old political axiom that you don't turn an 80% ally into a 20% enemy. Social media wankers who spend more time in the basement than Joe Biden are now turning 98% allies into 2% enemies. Good luck with that arithmetic. In the Cold War, we had Kremlinologists who looked at the Politburo all lined up for the May Day Parade and divined from subtle clues what was really going on. You know... Free societies, you shouldn't really need Kremlinologists. What appears to be going on should be what's going on. Uh, But now we have people explaining that this is all 4D chess. The Trump campaign is so far ahead of all of us, they've already won the case and are halfway through his second term. Maybe. Or maybe what appears to be happening is what's actually happening. Look, the Democrat nominee is the first candidate to win the White House without the two bellwether states of Ohio and Florida. The first candidate to win without Ohio and Florida in 60 years. Even more remarkably, out of 19 bellwether counties that have voted for the president every year since 1980, Mr. Biden managed to lose 18 of them by double digits. Yet he has 
apparently amassed a national vote tally greater than Barack Obama's. It now seems obvious to everyone that it was Biden who was carrying that deadweight loser Obama over the finish line. Except that Joe underperformed Hillary in every, every major metropolitan area except the four that mysteriously shut down the count round about the same time on election night. Philadelphia, Detroit, Milwaukee, Atlanta. The four cities in the four states that gave Joe his victory. As I mentioned on Rush the other day, the Democrats have just won the presidency despite losing every toss-up seat in the House of Representatives. Do you know the last time that happened in America? Never. That's all circumstantial and inferential in an adjudication context, but there are two very basic, very respectable legal objections to the election quote-unquote results. First, the Equal Protection Clause of the United States Constitution. Some counties allow voters to cure ballots, i.e. get a second bite of the cherry to fix your vote because of a mismatch signature or some such. And other counties don't allow voters to cure those ballots. That's a serious, slightly boring equal protection argument that judges uh, could be persuaded to take seriously. Second, there are actual documented instances of voting machine malfunction. The 6,000 Trump votes that one machine in Michigan transferred over to Biden. On Fox and Friends yesterday, I said that I'm thinking of forming the paper ballots party. Uh, because every other kind of system uh, is less secure, as the Founding Fathers would have acknowledged, uh, although all the blowhard constitutional fetishists on the airwaves are strangely silent on that point. The Paper Ballots Party, because actually foreign policy and healthcare and all the rest of it uh, don't really matter if you no longer have free and fair elections. And those 6,000 votes in Michigan make the point that whether by malfunction or malfeasance, those machines are capable of switching votes. And the documented instances so far are sufficient to call into question the results in jurisdictions where such machines are deployed. You don't have to get into Venezuela, Cuba, Hugo Chavez, the Chicoms, all the rest, all, all, all the rest of it. As I said uh, the other day, you know, the Dominion of Canada doesn't use Dominion voting systems. For some reason, uh, Dominion voting systems decided to set up a voting machine company in a country that doesn't use voting machines. Hmm. Any competent lawyer should be capable of making a sober, serious case on the evidence to date. Instead, we have the deranged twists of the last two seasons of Dynasty crammed into a single week as enraged soap opera fans turn on whichever poor boob uh, is tossed into their path. As I said to Tucker the day after the election, and oddly, despite being on the take from George Soros and anxious to leave for his pepperoni deep dish with Hunter, he let me say it on air. We are Belarus. In free and fair elections, you don't stop counting. You count until you have a result. You don't take what's now getting on for three weeks to count in certain congressional districts. You don't move ballots from place to place to place. In free societies, votes get counted where they're cast. But as briefly came up in our P.G. Woodhouse tale for our time last night, at election time, Americans have a high tolerance for what are euphemistically regarded as shenanigans. Shenanigans. Welcome to Shenanistan, now and forever. Of course, uh, the countervailing argument is that Joe Biden fought such a strong, vigorous, inspirational campaign of the kind that traditionally drives millions uh, to support such a candidate enthusiastically. And he's continuing in that vein en route to January the 20th. Here he is trying to read his prompter the other day. Thirdly, we discussed the need to help states with Title 32 funding for the National Guard. That's a fancy way of saying governors, governors need to be able to get funding 
when they just when they just they need to uh, and, and bring, bring their National Guard into play. And National Guards are going to have to play this. It costs a lot of money. Biden campaigned from his basement in Delaware and he will govern from a basement at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. He will be a remote president whose interactions with the public will be increasingly infrequent. Selected media will be booked once in a while to give a high school drama production of a press conference in which both parties have to be fed their lines. I suggested to Tucker a few days before the election that the plan was for Biden to be a ceremonial figurehead, and Tucker mimicked uh, the Queen's famous wave of her hand. But uh, that, that was a bit unfair to Her Majesty. The alleged president-elect is, in fact, not up to a state banquet at Windsor Castle, where you have to make coherent conversation for a couple of hours. He requires Dr. Jill Biden. Quote, Dr. Unquote Jill is not actually a medical practitioner, but she's performing the role of personal physician to Joe. Uh, he requires Dr. Jill uh, to sit behind him to feed him key words in his ear. You can't do that as a head of state. At dinner, the Queen sits with the President and the First Lady is three places away making chit-chat with the Duke of Edinburgh or the Prince of Wales. Same with the Macrons at the Elysee Palace. But the hard men behind Joe are not so woozily genial. As I said three days after the election... After January 20th, they're going to use that tax case in New York to put Trump in jail. And after that, they're going to use the DOJ and the IRS to nail as many Trump lieutenants as they can to teach the lesson this is never to happen again. That's why Trump has to declassify everything and release it himself direct from the White House. He has nothing to lose. The clock is ticking. Trump's getting lonelier and lonelier and down to the dregs. Uh, Chris Christie and the Washington Examiner are merely the latest to abandon him publicly, uh, while Corey Lewandowski and Pam Bondi and others have uh, become strangely invisible. And too much of the last three weeks has been wasted in promising to release the Kraken and then releasing merely the Grecian. To remind listeners, I backed Trump before you did. I back him now. But a clown show in public accompanied by witheringly contemptuous summary dismissals in court, as happened on Saturday in Pennsylvania, is not helpful. It's not serious. And the theft of an election ought to be serious. OK, stick a fork in me. I'm done. With reality's turn to the dark and dystopic, it's time for a cheery escape. Mark Stein's newest tale for our time is P.G. Woodhouse's Smith, journalist. For a respite from the woes of the 2020 world, tune in nightly as Mark recounts the tales of a Shropshire chap turned New York publisher forced to navigate the city's underworld, with several laughs along the way. Mark Stein's Tales for Our Time are available exclusively to members of the Mark Stein Club. Listen to this latest tale or the whole back catalogue by going to www.steinonline.com. The Mark Stein Club presents... The Hundred Years Ago Show. The meteoric fame of a West Virginia village, the French are speaking to the Pope again, and Western Union cables the government. Stop! It's November 1920. A hundred years from today. Your World News Update, the messy aftermath of the Great War continues. It's just a few days since the outgoing American president, Woodrow Wilson, in his capacity as arbitrator for the League of Nations, submitted his decision to the League Supreme Council with respect to the border between an aggressive Turkey and the new Republic of Armenia. But the more pressing problem may be Armenia's northern border. The Red Army of the Soviet Union has just invaded. Queen Olga left Greece when her husband, King George, was assassinated and returned to her native Russia. She then found herself trapped there when the Soviet Revolution broke out. She managed to escape to Switzerland and has now returned to Greece following her grandson, King Alexander's fatal bite from a monkey. 
Her Majesty has now taken the oath as Queen Regent before the Greek Parliament and will reign pending her adopted country's choice of a new monarch. The first legislative elections have been held in the new Kingdom of Serbs, Croats and Slovenes. The new Republic of Estonia has elected its first parliament. After three days of voting, the Social Democratic Workers' Party won a plurality but not a majority, 41 seats out of 100. France's National Assembly has voted to restore diplomatic relations with the Vatican after 47 years. And to reopen a French embassy in Vatican City, Paris severed relations with the Vatican in 1873 after the Franco-Prussian War. Ireland descends deeper into tit-for-tat violence. The so-called Bloody Sunday in Dublin began at nine in the morning when groups of six to eight members of the Irish Republican Army went door-to-door killing 15 of the government's undercover intelligence operatives. That afternoon, members of the Royal Irish Constabulary drove into Croke Park where 5,000 spectators were watching Dublin play a match of Gaelic football against Tipperary. The RIC opened fire on the crowd and killed an equal number to the IRA's morning death toll. Among them was Michael Hogan, one of the Tipperary players. The day ended with the arrest of three IRA men linked to the morning's killings. They were taken to Dublin Castle and died there that evening. Across the Irish Sea in the English city of Liverpool and its suburb Bootle, 18 warehouses, uh, mostly full of cotton, were torched with gasoline and paraffin shortly before nine in the evening. And now another attack has taken place in County Cork. Two truckloads of officers of the Auxiliary Division, uh, they assist the Royal Irish Constabulary, two truckloads of officers have been ambushed by the Irish Republican Army as they were returning from Macroon to Dunmanway. At the city of Amapala, Government representatives from Guatemala, Nicaragua, Honduras and Costa Rica have signed a boundary agreement as the first step toward a reunification of Central America into a single nation. Since the gold rush ended, you might think there's not much reason to visit Alaska unless you're partial to doing the grizzly bear and shaking yourself just like a blizzard. But in fact, the territory is growing. Anchorage was settled just five years ago, but it has now been incorporated as a city with a population of around 1,800. Leopold David, a former federal marshal and probate judge, has been appointed the new city's first mayor. Do you like fake news? There's a lot of it about Houseville, West Virginia made national headlines when a large meteor was reported to have struck the centre of the hamlet near the railroad station, exploding as it buried itself in the ground. According to the New York Times... Headline writers, Meteor Falls in Village, Houseville, West Virginia is thrown in panic as it explodes with terrific blast. Alas, there was no such meteor and no such panic. There are no telephones in Houseville. And by the time any actual citizen thereof had been contacted, the incendiary headlines had been splashed coast to coast. When the white frost hits the valley and the snow conceals the wood, the lumberjack has enough to do to find his family food. No time he has for pleasure or to hunt the buck and doe. He will roam the wild woods over and once more a lumbering go and once more a lumbering go. We will roam the wild woods over and once more a lumbering go. <laughs> <laughs>
When the white frost gilds the valleys, the coal congeals the flood, a lumbering we'll go. Sixteen lumberjacks from a crew of 33 are dead. They were on Maine's Chesuncook Lake on a boat bound for the lumber camp of the Great Northern Paper Company. The boat caught fire. Not a solitary lumberman perished in the flames. Instead, they jumped into the lake and half their number died trying to swim to shore in those icy waters. Charles Ponzi, who defrauded Boston investors in a practice the press has dubbed the Ponzi scheme, pleaded guilty to one of two federal indictments of mail fraud. The court at Plymouth, Massachusetts, has now sentenced him to the maximum term of five years in prison. The normal fine portion of the sentence has been waived because Mr Ponzi is broke and has no money to repay those he defrauded. Don't you hate deadbeats? Just two days ago, the Western Union Company announced that it would no longer send messages by cable for the United States government unless it was paid in advance. Newcomb Carlton, president of Western Union, uh, said that they had not received a cheque from the U.S. State Department in over a year, since August 1919. Now, Western Union has abandoned the policy after Admiral William Benson announced that henceforth the federal government would send all cables via a rival service, the Postal Telegraph Company. Have you heard of the postage meter? After lobbying by its inventor, Arthur Pitney, and his business partner, Walter Bowes, the Pitney Bowes postage meter has been approved by the United States Post Office as an alternative to postage stamps. Douglas Fairbanks is an instant hit in his new film about a strange, distant, masked man, The Mask of Zorro. From Zorro to Zero, a roundish stone written in the Pallava script of the Malay language and dated May the 1st, 683 Anno Domini, has been found on the banks of the Tatang River on the island of Sumatra. It is not only the oldest example of the Malay language, but also supposedly the earliest known use of a symbol for the number zero in a reference to what the local calendar calls the year 604. Everybody loves being up in the air in those aeroplanes, even in remote parts of Australia, such as Winton, Queensland, where three aviators have opened an airstrip in order to provide service to villages in what Australians call the Outback. The name of the new air service is the Queensland and Northern Territory Aerial Services. They might want to think about shortening that name. In sports news, George Gipp, the star halfback for the Notre Dame football team, following a spectacular performance just a few days ago, has been hospitalised with pneumonia following complications from tonsillitis. The deadliest earthquake in Albanian history has killed 200 people, mostly in the town of Tepelena in the south of the country. The 6.2 magnitude tremor struck just before 10 in the morning and lasted just seven seconds, enough to collapse dozens of buildings. Your cunning little dimples and your baby stare, your baby talk and baby walk and curly hair. Your baby's smile makes life worthwhile. You're just as sweet as you can be. Everybody loves a baby. That's why I'm in love with you. Pretty baby, pretty baby. And I'd like to be your sister, brother, dad, and mother too. Pretty baby, pretty baby. Everybody loves a baby, or do they? Because of the high mortality rate among mothers using illegal medical services to terminate their pregnancies, the Soviet Union has become the first government on earth to legalise the aborting of babies. Under the new decree, a woman whose confinement is three months or less will be able to have the child induced from the womb and disposed of. 
Marlon M. Garland, a Republican representative for Pennsylvania, was elected to the 67th Congress this month, but he will not get to serve in it. He has died at the age of 64. And that's The Way of the World, November 1920. A hundred years from today A hundred years from today Oh, you know what this music means. Mark's Mailbox is on the air. We have a missive from Brian, who writes from Minneapolis. It seems to me that at this point, no one seems to care if the election was rigged. And they just want Trump to go away. It frustrates me that we've been fighting for four years and now we're supposed to let the mob win because we care more about there not being violence in the streets from a Trump win than there is about integrity in an election. I wouldn't have been happy if Biden won fairly, but that would have been America's decision and not the decision of the establishment. I'll be humble in defeat, but not if they cheat. Putting the faith in judges that may be Obama appointees and then to the Supreme Court is the only nonviolent path we have to win. Any advice for a club member that thinks that there is more negativity than ever from our side? Well, if you think this last weekend was negative, Brian, the bloodletting has not even begun. Uh, I do care that the election was rigged. I cannot recognize, for whatever that's worth, uh, Joe Biden as a legitimate president. And I don't want to move on to talking about whether this or that cabinet pick uh, is exciting because I don't believe he should be picking a cabinet. As for violence in the streets, in a strange way, <laughs> uh, well, uh, let me just go back to that uh, line I started using a few months ago. I used to worry that there would be a civil war. Now I'm worried there won't be, which is a bloody miserable thing to have to say. As to putting faith in judges, well, one third of the Supreme Court was appointed by Donald Trump. That's pretty amazing. But as I said just a few weeks ago, that in itself is by definition playing defense. And I'm sick of conservatives who just uh, want to play defense. And that's what you're doing when you put your faith in a judge's republic, which is a contradiction in terms. You're saying conservatives may lose here, there, all over the map. But don't worry, by the time it all gets to the high court, uh, the judges will hold the line first. That's a recipe for losing the country because, as I said about Anthony Kennedy's same-sex marriage decision, although Gorsuch and transgender rights will do just as nicely, just as politics is downstream of culture, so too is jurisprudence. I was thinking of how it came to be that Rudy Giuliani is now all that stands between Trump and the abyss. Uh, do you remember the last time Rudy ran for anything? It was the presidency in 2008. His numbers were bad in Iowa, but he said, oh, never mind. Forget about it. Forget about it. That's because I was socially conservative and I'm pro-choice. So forget Iowa. I'm not even going to bother to compete. Then his numbers sank in New Hampshire and he said, ah, oh, forget it. That's because they're Second Amendment guys and I'm a New York mayor who's perceived as a gun grabber in the North Country. Uh, so forget New Hampshire. I'm not even going to bother to compete there. Then his numbers sagged in South Carolina and I can't even remember why, uh, but they seem to be holding in Florida. So he said, I I'm uh, not really going to bother with these first states. I'm holding off until Florida. And so other guys won Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina. And by the time Florida rolled around, Rudy was toast. The 2008 Giuliani campaign is a metaphor for the National Republican Party and American conservatism more generally. The big L shape down through the Rockies and out to the Atlantic that won for Bush in 2000 has now been completely nibbled away at the edges. Virginia's blue. And Georgia, if not yet blue, is sufficiently purple for the Democrats to steal. We're like Rudy in 2008, sloughing off Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina. Let the Dems have the culture. Let the Dems have the mainline churches. Let the Dems have the school system. Let the Dems have big tech. Let the Dems have the corporations. We'll win with NASCAR, Chick-fil-A and 
Tuesday night every other November. And then NASCAR goes social justice on you and Chick-fil-A fries you to a crisp. And on a Wednesday morning in November, you wake up to find the Dems have stolen the election and no one cares because all the other levers of society can't even see the theft. You can't withdraw from as much of life as American conservatism has done and expect to win every other November. And even if you do win, what can you accomplish? Because conservative politics in a liberal culture just means, to reprise another old line of mine, uh, that you're in office but not in power. We've just spent the weekend talking about what Jenna Ellis thinks of Sidney Powell or whatever it was meant to be. 95% of Americans have never heard of either. So we're not talking about anything that matters. We're like Rudy in 2008, dignifying the shrinking bit of turf we're playing on as strategic genius. Whatever you think of the 2016 Trump, he played for everything. He expanded the map. He expanded the conversation. And I'm not going back to the old uh, consultant industrial complex that is a recipe for failure for everybody except conservative ink grifters. Mark Stein's Last Call. Our ongoing roll call from the great mountain of corpses from Chicom 19 goes on. These people from all around the globe are dead because of Chairman Xi and his Politburo, and we remember them because we want the world to remember them and ensure that one day they will be avenged and there will be a reckoning. It is an odd disease, rather like a social version of AIDS. The wider you spread your circle the more likely you are to catch it. And so if you go to summits, to international conferences, to elite ski resorts, the more likely you are to come home bearing the gift of COVID. I'm always struck by the number of prominent national leaders who have been felled by this thing, with the notable exception, of course, of the Chinese Communist Party, where uniquely nobody seems to come down with it. We mentioned the short-lived Republic of Armenia a few minutes ago. That was at the end of the Great War. Seventy years later, at the end of the Cold War, a new Republic of Armenia emerged and has stuck around a little longer. For a decade, until just two years ago, Rita Sargsyan was the first lady of Armenia. And as she told this interviewer, she never wanted her husband to become president. Yes, in America in recent years, first ladies have taken on faintly hectoring social missions like Michelle Obama's Childhood Obesity Initiative. In Armenia, Mrs. Sargsyan had been a music teacher by profession, and so she dedicated herself to boosting the nation's cultural eminence. What is the world's most famous piece of Armenian music? Well, apart from the chipmunk song, Me, I Wonder Who, by uh, Ross Bagdasarian. That aside, the most famous piece of Armenian music is this. Frenetic Sabre Dance, which seems not inappropriate to 2020. 
2020. That's my Hatcheturian. Gesundheit. Hatcheturian. So Rita Sargsyan became an energetic promoter of the Aram Hatcheturian International Classical Music Competition and the Yerevan International Music Festival. And it is fair to say she raised her nation's cultural profile until the COVID shut down the world's music. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 58, First Lady of Armenia for 10 years, Rita Sargsyan. The Prime Minister of Bosnia and Herzegovina seems a rather dull position these days now that the country's just another minor member in waiting of the European Union. But it was a tough job in the early 90s and most prime ministers did not last long. The breakup of Yugoslavia had precipitated the worst slaughter in Europe since the Second World War. And Sarajevo was consequential for the first time since the Archduke Franz Ferdinand's ill-fated visit in the summer of 1914. The city was bombed and burned, with over two million people fled and over 100,000 dead, and over 50,000 women raped, as my old sparring partner uh, Louise Arbour, who prosecuted those rapes as a war crime, could tell you all about. Here is Hassan Muratovic, a Bosnian cabinet minister in the rubble of Sarajevo, trying to sound optimistic about yet another season. If they, if they say it by four o'clock this afternoon, then it is automatically. If they don't say it before o'clock, then it's again delayed for 24 hours. And then it will come on the next day, minute past midnight. Yes, but I'm sure they will comply with the request and there will be ceasefire from midnight and I hope that will be the last day of the war. Why do you uh, need the four o'clock? Uh, why do you need them to say Because we need time to inform troops. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you very much. And why are you leaving the city? Uh, are you leaving the city now or are you going off to... I am going to Brussels to a mm -hmm. meeting about economic reconstruction of Bosnia-Herzegovina, and that is part of the peace process. A few weeks after that, Mr. Muratovic became the Republic of Bosnia and Herzegovina's last prime minister before that short-lived state was liquidated by the Dayton Peace Accords and replaced by the rather more artfully constructed Federation of Bosnia and Herzegovina under an EU high representative. In my summer entertainment, The Prisoner of Windsor, you may hear certain Bosnian echoes in both present-day Ruritania and Britain, including, indeed, a high representative for both nations. But politics in Sarajevo was bloody and life-threatening in the mid-90s. He survived the Yugoslav implosion and the Bosnian bloodbath, but not the Chaikom 19. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 80, former Prime Minister Hasan Muratovic. Khalil El Mumni was born in Morocco and became a big shot imam at the Anasa Mosque in Rotterdam. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen he was a big draw until the end, and it all sounds so harmlessly multiculti and diverse when it's in Arabic. But in early 2001, he was invited on Dutch TV to discuss the unfortunate tendency of Moroccan youths in the Netherlands to beat the crap out of homosexuals. And Imam El Mumni said, quote, If the sickness of homosexuality spreads itself, everyone can become infected by it. That's what we are afraid of. Who will still make children if men marry among themselves and women too? 
Pimp Fortuyn, a gay Dutchman, was a dominant figure in Rotterdam politics back then and took exception to this kind of talk. But poor Pim was assassinated the following year, and in any case, the imam was always perfectly upfront about his views. Quote, Western civilization is a civilization without morals. In the Netherlands, it is permitted for homosexuals to marry each other. Europeans stand lower than dogs and pigs. In the early years of this century, such remarks could still startle the Dutch, boundlessly tolerant of the avowedly intolerant as they are. And Khalil El Mumni was moved to apologise and to attend some gay re-education camp lessons, which can't have been terribly agreeable for him. Nevertheless, the Dutch state decided to prosecute. He was acquitted by the court because, they ruled, while his statements were undoubtedly discriminatory, they were based on the Koran and thus permitted on grounds of freedom of religion. The justice ministry appealed but lost again. Yet the imam had either tired of the fight or tired of all the homosexuals and the other European pigs and dogs and opted for retirement to Morocco. He survived litigious gays and relentless prosecutors, but not Chaikom 19, dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 79, Khalil El Mumni. Aaron the Rage Page was a British strongman. Uh, the European log champion of 2016 and 2017, that's for picking up logs, not, not fireplace logs, but telegraph pole-sized stuff. And then the European deadlift champion of 2018. In one motion, that last log, literally like it was made of balsa wood, and three is easy as well. It is the kind of individual he's ignited by the crowd, the rage, feeling it here in Sheffield, and he fires four up. How about that? The SA Arena, Aaron, the Rage Page, starting well, quick to four, approaches that last log. This is massive for the man representing England. Whoa, there it is. Have some of that. Aaron Page, what a way to start, Bill. Aaron Page bringing the rage, the rage that a strongman can only find deep within. What is motivation? Motivation is that feeling you get where your soul sets on fire, where you are literally, you can take on the whole world. You are unstoppable. That, that to me is motivation. But sometimes motivation isn't always there. We have those dark days, we have those injuries, we have those days where we just feel beaten and we can't get up. It brings us to ask ourselves, what motivates me? What is motivation to me? Here is Mr Page motivating others just one month ago as he and his pupil Dan Hind bemoan the way the Covid has clobbered their business. We've been training for quite a while now. Uh, we sort of we were building up to attempt the British dumbbell record. Unfortunately Covid got involved but we'll sit and talk about that more. But um, this is Dan and he will tell you a bit about himself. What is your name? My name is Dan Hind. I train at Big Andy's in Deerham, Norfolk. Training for the British record was uh, very, very tough, but very, very good at the same time. Unfortunately, COVID got in the way and um, yeah, we had to stop, unfortunately, and we had to come up with another plan. Less than a fortnight ago, Aaron Page's girlfriend, Chloe Woodford, posted on Facebook that they'd both tested positive for COVID and that Aaron was in an induced coma. He's a strong boy, she said. He'll get through this. Alas, not. He was strong enough to come fifth in this year's competition for Britain's strongest man, but not strong enough to see off the Chaikom 19, dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 33, Aaron the Rage Page. If all that sabre-dancing is bringing too much rage, let me calm you down with Hatchaturian's second best-known composition and the polar opposite of the sabre-dance, the adagio from his ballet Spartacus, which you may well know better as the theme from the Oneidin.
nicely calmed down now. That will do it for today's show. We had a busy weekend at Stein Online, starting with a little WB Yeats and Rodrigo's guitar concerto on our Friday show. Kathy Shadle's movie pick was Betty Davis at her bettiest best in Now Voyager. I was up early on Sunday for Fox and Friends and later offered as our Sunday song selection Georgia on my mind. And our marquee presentation this weekend was my latest tale for our time, Escapism plus social realism from P.G. Woodhouse in Smith, journalist. If you were too busy adjusting the algorithm on your Canadian voting machine this weekend, I hope you'll want to check out one or three of the foregoing as a new week begins. I'll see you for Smith Part 3 this evening at Stein Online, and on Thanksgiving Eve I'll be on the telly. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. reserved.